both the life of the Buddha and uh, a little historical perspective of the life of the Buddha, we've already covered something of the um, climate of religious thought in India at the time of the birth of the Buddha. And so we've been talking about the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, of <coughs> his growing up in his family, his marriage, his, uh, having, his wife having a child, his leaving home, his uh, going forth into homelessness to do his own spiritual search. We've talked a little bit about it as the paradigm for um, coming to be mature in a life and at some point deciding to uh, deciding about a spiritual search. I don't think that people get born thinking I'm going to have a spiritual journey. Uh, I think we, we, when I look at my grandchildren, they say, uh, at, depending on what age, and uh, I don't know whether this is gender specific, but at least my four-year-old grandson is uh, has been sure since two that he was going to be a firefighter. And, uh, but you think about what am I going to do in the world, and then you begin to think about um, the whole idea about I'll grow up and I'll be a grown person is the best that they can usually project forward. No one at that age thinks about I'm going to have a spiritual search and discover the meaning of life. I was driving along the other morning and listening uh, to uh, Michael Krasny on Forum. I guess it was yesterday morning. Did you remember? Did you hear that? Um, and he had a whole program on uh, what's the purpose of life and the meaning of life. And people phoned in. And, and, and the beginning of it, they had different people that they had um, uh, set up in advance that they were going to talk to. One of them was Scoop Nisker, who's um, one of the teachers here. And I miss Scoop. I just turned on later than that. I wished I'd heard him. And I wish that I had been on uh, because, <laughs> I don't know, maybe Scoop said this, maybe you know. Um, somebody said, um, we shouldn't be talking about purpose of life and meaning of life as if it's one thing. They're two different things. And someone else called in and said, uh, all meaning is personal, so there's no such thing as a question, what's the meaning of life, because it's all a subjective meaning just to the particular person. Uh, really, what makes life meaningful for you? Um, some people called in and were sure they knew the purpose and the meaning of life. It was interesting. <laughs> and I thought to myself, what would I say if Michael Krasny called me and said, okay, this is Sylvia Boerstein, and this is Sylvia Boerstein, but as teacher, what, I would have said, well, what the Buddha would have done, I think, is tell a story of the person who says, said to him, presumably, uh, you know, I've been a monk in your order for a while, and uh, you have not yet said anything about where we were, are before we're born, and where we go after we die, and uh, what kind of a mind is a Buddha mind, and what was it like before birth, and then where does it go after birth, and uh, asks all the metaphysical questions about life and death, and gets all finished. I, I always love telling that story because I think it's so cheeky, imagine, to go to the Buddha and say, I'm disappointed in your teaching. <laughs> you know, he, uh, here he was, the, a tremendously venerable, actually uh, venerated figure in his time and since. 
people come in and say, no, you know, I don't think you've done a really good job teaching. <laughs> Haven't really told me that. And he gets all finished with his complaint, and the Buddha is said to have said to him, you're quite right, I didn't. He said, because, think of it this way. Suppose a person is shot with a poison arrow, and uh, uh, his uh, companions say, you know, we're going to rush you now to a surgeon and get that poison arrow out. And the person were to say, wait a minute, before we go, I want to have a discussion about this poison arrow. Who do you think could have shot me? I don't have any enemies. Everybody likes me. And uh, what kind of poison disposes on this arrow? After all, we're not in our local place where we live where they have such and such a poison. Maybe it's this other kind of poison. What kind of poison could they put on this arrow? By the time you finished having a debate about who or what or how, you would be dead. So the point of the poison arrow is if someone shoots you with a poison arrow, you rush and take it out or have it taken out. Then you discuss afterwards, if you feel like, how it got there and why. But the main thing is to remove the cause of the pain. The Buddha said, I came to teach one thing and one thing only. I came to teach suffering and the end of suffering. And really what we'll get to talk about, that's kind of the Reader's Digest version of this whole morning, is that his discovery of what causes suffering in the mind and the uh, mind habit changes that need to happen for suffering to stop are the crux of his teaching. Everything else, in a sense, is commentary. How did we come to have these mind traits? How did they get there? All extra. And then I, I thought about, when I was writing along yesterday, listening to Michael Krasny, I thought, oh, I'll start to teach about the Buddha's insight that way. I'll tell the poison arrow story. Because this whole conversation, which I enjoyed very much listening to on the radio, I thought is akin to um, the spiritual question, but it really isn't the, the nexus of the spiritual question. How are we going to get comfortable, really? How are we going to discover that we can be safe in our lives or feel content in our lives without an answer. Somebody who phoned in said, well, you know, for the answer to purpose, we're going to have to wait until someday a voice will boom out of the sky and say, this is the purpose of life. But, you know, we could always say, I don't believe it, you know, even if it boomed, you know. It, it's been the, the nature of um, religious teachings to say this is it. And then for a lot of people to say, oh, yes, this is it, and a lot of other people to say, no, I don't think so. So I began to think about uh, a little bit as we sat this morning um, what I said about the instructions and how they had to do with what the Buddha hoped would happen. But I had a certain view of the cause of suffering, the nature of suffering, and the end of suffering. But it was his um, conviction that you can't just tell somebody that. They have to get it. You can tell people. As a matter of fact, that's one of the other very famous teaching stories of the Buddha. Along with the poison arrow story, it's probably right up there with the most told stories about the Buddha. He preached uh, his understanding all over India for... Um, Forty-some years, he was into his 80s when he died. Um, and it, when he preached to the people of Kalama, 
a sermon to the people of Kalama, very famous because he said something like, don't believe anything that anybody tells you. Don't believe it if they're a trusted friend. Don't believe it if they're a uh, well-known teacher. Don't believe it even if they're a revered teacher. Don't even believe it if they're a Buddha. Let those teachings be present in you. Verify them with your own experience. If it is true, if it works for you, then you can take it on. Then you can know that it's true. Uh, two people, I'm very happy to give back to the two people who brought me last week uh, the search for intelligence, the science for intelligent life in the universe, which I had asked for. It's wonderful to ask for something here because then it materializes right away. <laughs> I said, I wish I had a copy of that book. So I got two of them right the next week because I had seen it the week before and been very impressed and said I'd wished I had a little secret light on a pen and a pad. The woman who begins, it's a one-woman show, uh, Lily Tomlin is playing it in San Francisco now, and uh, the the narrator of the whole show is a homeless person, a woman, who is um, in a relationship with space beings, aliens, who come to visit her, and she has a quite lively relationship with the space beings. She's waiting for them. And she says to the audience, uh, to them, a journey of a thousand miles begins with bio-astral projection. I said, so you folks believe in astral projection? They said, if something's true, you don't need to believe in it. That's a really great line. Then she said, I'm talking advanced. <laughs> said something on the next page that was very good. Wait. She's got... Um, and I'm just going to tell you this just because it's such a good line. It's not exactly the follow-up line. She has post-its. They're invisible post-its. But then she says, I'm writing down all these important things and I'm uh, posting them all over me. So you have to imagine that she's got these yellow post-its all over her. And she's got post-its with important things. What goes up must come down. But don't expect it to come down where you can find it, which is Murphy's <laughs> Law applied to Newton's. Do you know in the entire universe we are the only intelligent life forms that that thought to have a Miss Universe contest? <laughs> here's, the, here's the one I really wanted to read to you. Do you know throughout the cosmos they found intelligent life forms that play to play. We are the only ones that play to win. Explains why probably we have more than our share of losers. It's really such a good line, isn't it? I have one more line from that near the end. And I thought one more thing. I was listening to the radio last night again. In my car, I listened to NPR quite a lot. I was listening to a program, because what I really wanted to say this morning, and this backs us up, when we were sitting, and I said the instruction that the Buddha gave was just to keep your attention right here. You could say, well, why, what good would it be to be right here? What would we see from that? And really, the Buddha's vision, uh, Buddha's understanding was that if we could just see what was true, then we would accommodate it. And it would be acceptable to us. We'd get it. 
we would see really the message that we're going to talk about today, the truth of suffering, but has in it already the truth of the end of suffering, or a hint about the possibility of the end of suffering. It's not a gloomy vision. Uh, even the even the first noble truth, all is suffering. When people first hear that, they think, wow, Buddhism is a gloomy religion. It's not. You know, you look at the Dalai Lama with his wonderful little laugh. You look at the pictures of people in contemplative repose. And I don't think it's because they've left this world. It's because they're not trapped by the story of this world, because their minds are free. They get to see this is an extraordinary production in which there are lives that come and go. But I was thinking about... uh, uh, as we gave the instruction this morning, as I gave the instruction this morning, saying about it's only if you're present that you can see what's true. And if you can see what's true, no matter how overwhelming it is, the mind somehow has a lot of space for it. That if the mind is at rest and what's here is here, it's just what's true. Where the, the words that always come up in my mind as I say that are teaching words from um, Ajahn Sumedho, who's a contemporary uh, Theravada monk. He's the abbot of Amaravati Monastery in London and uh, a wonderful teacher. He was here teaching a retreat of teachers at the Spirit Rock Center last spring. He also teaches retreats for everybody, once a year usually here in Spirit Rock. And he says about difficult things, he says, I say to myself, it's like this. And you just get such a transmission of the kind of a mind that can say, it's like this, which has given up the struggle to have it be like something else. It's like this. That's it. Then there's no fight about it. There's no fight about it. It's just what it is. And here we are and forward. The, the, the NPR story I was going to tell you of also having heard was uh, about a new film that's just opened, a documentary. I don't know if it's in San Francisco, it's in New York. It's called Trembling Before God. Anybody has seen it? Is it around here? Is it around here, Claire? I saw it at the Jewish Film Festival. Uh-huh. Last summer. Here or in San Francisco? It might have come to Marin as well. Uh-huh. So I am, I'm very eager to see it when it comes back. I was particularly interested in the people making commentary around it. It's um, about um, uh, people in the Orthodox Jewish community coming out to their friends, to their family, uh, about their own homosexuality, which has been traditionally a very difficult thing to come out about in that particular community, which has held quite strong views about the unacceptability of. So it had the people who were the directors of the movie and had stories about uh, their parents, not only their, their coming out to their parents, and the way in which telling the truth about oneself is always liberating, but the way in which their parents not only came to see the film, but got the message of the pain of not not only being able to say the truth, but not only being able to acknowledge the truth, and the numbers and numbers <laughs> of people who were transformed and liberated by being able to say, it's like this. 
if it's like this. And you get so uplifted in hearing that story. And people who came back the next night and brought their whole uh, community of friends. And I'm visualizing this my whole, in, in my mind because I'm just listening, talking about. And uh, my sister came back the next day with her, and this is one person telling the story, with her whole community of Hasidic Jews from Muncie, New York, which is a whole community of Hasidic Jews. She came back with a whole community. And they all came to see the film. And then they stood outside. And all the communities that were outside, and people who brought their cameras and took pictures of each other, that uh, the sense of the picture was, if we all tell the truth, we can all come in the same room with each other. And we can, not only on the matter of uh, difference of sexual orientation or difference of view about sexual orientation, but difference of view. We could get in the room and say to each other, this is what's true for me. And we could hear, this is what's true for that person, and make the room safe. What an incredible freedom that is. So while we were sitting this morning, I was thinking about the Buddha's instruction about mindfulness. And here we come around to what did the Buddha see and how does this relate with his story. So now we'll pick up his story a little bit. I'm having such a good time doing this. It's so interesting. I'm hopeful to get him grown up <laughs> at the same time that I get his uh, teaching out. So just to remind you, he left home and he studied with um, uh, two different very well-known teachers of that time for six years, three years here, three years there, with the two most venerable teachers in the Indian ascetic, monastic, uh, uh, religious tradition of his time. Um, and he became, for each of them, apparently, hit their most advanced student. The folklore around it, at least, is that both of them said, you're now as advanced as I am in your ability to develop deep and penetrative meditation, med- meditative states and your ability to establish tremendous concentration. So why don't you teach with me? And in both cases, he is said to have said, thank you very much, but I have not penetrated still the cause of suffering and the end of suffering. And that's really what I set out to do. The vision of suffering that he had, um, is, which you read about differently depending on... Um, depending on where you read it. Uh, it becomes more folkloric in different settings. Uh, one is that he had been magically protected from seeing the truth of old age, sickness, and death because he uh, was the child of uh, uh, the ruling prince, depending on which version, in a certain area, and that he lived in three different castles throughout the year where even the plants were kept changed so they no, never, no plant ever died. Only beauty met his eyes and married at 16 and had a child. And uh, there was nothing to trouble his mind. Every sense need was met. Mind was not troubled. That's one version. And that at, six, at uh, 20, when his child was six, I think, he went out of those palace walls somehow snuck out in the night and saw, in fact, the truth that by seeing an old person, a sick person, a dead person, 
uh, and being struck with the complicated truth of life is that everything ages and decays. Everything decays. And I guess we think about it in terms of if we're lucky it ages before it decays and not sooner than it's time. But kind of got troubled with the existential problem of life that we typically think, say, of adolescents thinking about when they go to college and they uh, talk about existential concerns like they didn't at six, at eight. You don't think about that a lot. Six or at eight, you're still at the level of, and they lived happily ever after. And um, you get a little older, usually before, you know that that's not exactly true. Um, we all, at different stages in our lives, huh, I didn't think I would say this. I actually hadn't planned to. My mother died when I was 23 years old. She had been uh, infirm through most of my childhood. She had uh, rheumatic heart disease when she was a child. And uh, um, she grew up. I was her only child. Uh, She wasn't, for most of my childhood, bedridden. uh, But she walked slower than other mothers and uh, couldn't do anything that required any athletic ability. She was out of breath fast. Now, people don't have those sequelae of rheumatic heart disease. They have uh, penicillin and antibiotics, so they don't, their heart valves aren't damaged usually. And if they are, they replace the heart valves these days. But some of you may have replaced heart valves. And I worried a lot through all of my childhood that my mother would not live. And actually, she lived longer than I imagined she would. and she died when I was 23 years old. And I, I really had protected myself uh, from thinking about that eventuality. I thought about it all the time. But I protected myself by uh, just worrying about it and not thinking about how sad it would make me. And actually, when she died, it was a number of years before I let myself know how sad I felt about it. I was. It's possible. Imagine I'm telling you all this. It's possible to keep yourself so busy doing a life that you don't actually feel how badly you feel about something. You just, I was, I was grown up. I was finished with college. I was married. I had two children. Now I had two more children right after that, so I kept myself really busy. And then quite suddenly it caught up with me. And I realized how profoundly sad I was. And, um, actually, it was in my first very serious uh, enterprise of being in psychotherapy that I discovered that. But part of that experience, and it was all good for me, so I'm glad that I did it, and very grateful to the therapist that I worked with. There's a period of time And I was so profoundly bereft that I seriously could not imagine why we do this life. Why would people get up in the morning, I would think, and do a day and carry on and deal with all the difficulties that one inevitably has to deal with in the best of lives if they're not endless, if they're going to wear out after a while? Why would we do this? 
And so it seemed to me now, even as I told you, we do it because we have an instinct to stay alive. We're interested in the next day. We have stuff that connects us to our lives. We have, um, the image I have is we're connected to this life in the same way that, um, I think, in the same way that the hot air balloons in Sonoma County, where I live, are connected to the ground. You know, do you, do you watch them ever do those hot air balloons people ride in? You see, those hot air balloons are tied down to the ground by all kinds of uh, big ropes, so they don't just float off. And I think to myself, the ones that have the most ropes are the ones that are most tied down. And in order for that balloon to take off, they have to untie the ropes. And I think most of us, if we're fortunate, have a lot of ropes that tie us down here, and have enough ropes to tie us down here, so that we can have in mind, okay, it's not finite, actually. A friend of mine said at one point, it's downhill all the way. I don't know if I like that image, but... Um, but we can know that it's finite and say, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it because there are things I have to do while I'm here. There are ways in which being uh, helpful to other people is a redemptive act. It makes it okay. I'll get out of bed one more day to help out some more people, and that will even it out. But there are certainly times, I'm not going to tell you to show me if you've had them as well, where one thinks, why on earth? If my mind could feel so bereft with the temporality of things and the fact that things are lost to you forever, why is it, is it even possible to live in a world where what is most dear is inevitably going to be parted from you? It's one of the things that the Buddha said at one point. He said, everything that is dear to anyone causes pain. That's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? Because you think, what's the answer to that? Should we hold things not dear? Suppose somebody said, okay, if you want to finish with all your pain, you have a drink of that water over there, there's an herb in it. And that herb will render everyone equally non-dear. It's all source of indifference to you. Anybody here would drink it? Trade it for the pain? Do you agree with the Buddha? Everything that is dear to you causes pain? I said to somebody, I said, <laughs> maybe I'm telling you this now to pick up the mood a little bit. From I, I, maybe for me, maybe your mood is fine. Uh, <laughs> somebody says, some people say to me every once in a while, especially when I travel and teach and they don't know me as well as you do, and they only know something I've written, and they'll say something like, uh, how does it feel to have peace of mind all the time? <laughs> I thought you might laugh, actually. <laughs> so I say to them, I wish I knew, you know. But the, and, and I also say, you know, sometimes I do feel very peaceful and wonderful. I say, but I am two words away from my peace of mind being completely shattered. So they're hanging to see what are the two words. <laughs> Know the two words? Two words have to be preceded by the phone ringing. Phone rings, ring, ring, you pick up the phone, and someone says, hello, Ma. <laughs> In not exactly the right tone of voice. <laughs> and the whole peace of mind is, is that not true for you? The whole peace of mind is completely shattered, it's gone. 
<laughs> everything that is dear to you causes pain. There's no question about it. And the more people that are dear to you, the more avenues of possible pain there are. And we make them freely. And we want more of them. And we rejoice every time we fall in love, don't we? It's a very peculiar system. <laughs> Rigged. But that's the way it is. If I were Ajahn Sumedho, I'd say it's like this. <laughs> you know what the truth is? The other end of the truth, so we don't leave that story lie. It's the other end of the story is that when you tell yourself the truth, and you feel what you feel about it, you feel what you feel about it, and then time passes, because everything passes, and then whatever balance happens over time, sooner or later. And if we're lucky, for most of us, not for everybody, we recuperate from terrible blows. Not for everybody. But for most of us, we recuperate because there is a certain um, part of us, first of all, that recuperates from the blow of pain, and also that is prepared in moments of ease to express itself lovingly. And the loving expression is redemptive. That's why. Because the Buddha's message is twofold. It is about the suffering inherent in all life experience, but it is also about the redemptive potential of the human heart. It is. It's both of them. I don't know that it could be just one of them. I'm about to um, um, teach with uh, several of my really close teaching buddies for the next month, so we're all kind of excited about it. And, uh, and this is a group of us that teaches together as a teaching collective quite a lot, so we really know what one another are uh, you know, more or less going to say. Everybody has certain favorite lines that they say. And uh, my friend Sally very often says the very famous uh, dictum of the Buddha. She says it in such a serious way. The Buddha said, I've come to teach one thing and one thing only, suffering in the end of suffering. And then she waits and she said, that always sounded to me like two things. <laughs> and everybody laughs just like that because she does it so well in her wonderful voice. But... It, apart from that, that the the joke element of the semantics of that sentence, I think it is two things actually, but I think it's the suffering and the end of suffering is one thing only in the sense of they are both the potential of awakened understanding and response, and they're two sides of awakened understanding and response. think that he taught the path of insight, of seeing clearly. The path of mindfulness, which is what we most are teaching here, path of pay attention. Even when we say close the eyes, this is just the warm-up time for the whole of life. When people say to me, what's your practice? I don't say to them, I sit. I say to them, I try to pay attention all the time. Towards that end, I sit some because it's helpful to me to sit. 
Otherwise, I don't pay such good attention. Um, that's like a uh, little bit like uh, that story I told you about my mother's. Uh, I'm fond of remembering that as long as I'm remembering my mother this morning. I liked her a lot. I loved her tremendously. She would say to me, "Hand me, would you hand me that on the table on the other side of the room? And there'd be lots of things on the table, and I'd be standing right there in the way of children, and I'd say, I can't find it. And she'd say, look with your eyes, uh, as if to say, really, look. Uh, but really, look, is what the Buddha said. If you really looked, you would see what's true. If you really, really looked, you would see how much pain and how much suffering there is in the world. If you really, really looked, you would be heartbroken about it. And you would see how much extra pain and suffering is both caused by unrecognized greed and hatred and delusion in the mind, and a response to unrecognized greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. You would see that as long as those veils that prevent clear seeing are there, we continue to cause suffering and feel suffering. So if we saw clearly and told the truth about it, we could be free. Then if we were free, the veils would disappear and the radiant heart capacity of kindness and compassion which we're born with would manifest itself. And we would feel good and other people would feel good. It's for the benefit of all beings because there's only all beings. Sometimes people say about meditation practice particularly uh, that it's narcissistic, it's self-preoccupation. If it were just... um, I would feel really badly if I thought that it was it was um, self-preoccupied. I think it's self-referential because I don't know that we have any other reference point other than our own experience. But I think it's all on behalf of all beings. I think it's on behalf of this being at the same time. I don't know how many people take up a spiritual practice because they're moved by the plight of the world while they themselves feel fine but just sort of get up one morning and say, you know what, seems like for a job for myself, instead of being a firefighter, I'll be a spiritual seeker or something. Maybe actually they're not that far. I was just using Harrison's idea about when I grow up, I'll be a firefighter and maybe, but that's a very noble intention. That's already on behalf of all beings. Maybe it's, I'd like to think it's the youngest version of on behalf of all beings. That would be a nice thing to think about. So I think the Buddha taught two things. He taught that path about you start with insight, you see the truth, and the heart of kindness is revealed. And he taught metta practice. You potentiate the heart of kindness. You just build that heart muscle. You make an intention to not act from any place, but a place of open-heartedness. You rivet your attention on the needs of all beings, and you wish them well. You respond to them with compassion. You um, uh, hold their joy in altruistic joy that doesn't envy them or begrudge them anything. As you do that, not being caught in your self-preoccupation with yourself, you discover the truth that there is no separate self. You discover the truth that the cause of suffering is the specious sense of a separate self that we then invest with all kinds of needs, and then spend a lot of tense time 
trying to meet those needs which are in fact insatiable and can't be met. It's an endless, it's like dogs chasing their tail. You can't do it. You mean spend a whole life doing it, but it's fruitless. It's a bottomless pit, really. It doesn't make you happy. I think that's what the Lily Tomlin line means. Other intelligent species play to play, we play to win. That's probably why we're such losers. I brought along the New York Times of the other day. Don't know when I when I thought I would read it to you. Probably when I began to talk about what the Buddha said about the first noble truth. When the Buddha when the Buddha had his experience of total understanding under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, he left those two teachers, he went off, he left those communities of monks with whom he was practicing, and he said, I haven't figured out the cause of suffering and the end of suffering, so I'm going to do that. He went off to um, a place right near Bodh Gaya, uh, sat down under a particular tree with the affirmation, presumably, I am not standing up from this place until I totally have understood. I love that, by the way. That just gives me such inspiration. I frequently say that to myself, especially when I'm on retreat and I'm having a hard time and my mind is in more disrepair than I can comfortably, than I am comfortable with. I find if I sit down on the Zafu and I say to myself, I am not standing up until I am free, something happens. Now, it hasn't happened that I have a complete illumination like the Buddha. I'm not completely free of fetters. But the act of saying that makes me feel good. It's as if such a determination itself clears the mind even before I sit down. It's just, this is it. Here I am. So he sat down under the tree, and in the story, he sat through the night, and throughout the different watches of the night, after a struggle with greed and hatred and delusion, in the form, uh, in the folklore, of all kinds of uh, barbs and arrows and assaults from Mara, the evil one who would like for the Buddha's enlightenment not to happen, he sits through it. Um, Ah, here he is in the right pose. Most often you see Buddhas with both hands in their lap like that. This is one of the Buddhas where he has one hand in his lap and the other hand out on the ground. I love that kind of a Buddha. The story is that when Mara was assailing him with all these confusing feelings, he put his hand down on the floor as if to say, I have a right to be here. This is my place on the earth. And it was his being able to do that that caused his will not to waver. So if I'm dramatic enough and I'm sitting and I'm in that mood, I keep one hand here and one hand down. And I say to myself, I have a right to be here. So he sat, he had his illuminating vision. And he uh, got up in the morning, or stood up in the morning and said, I'm free. The ridge pole is broken. House builder, you will build no more. The ridge pole he's referring to, is, your ridge pole is what holds up a tent or holds up a house. The house that he is 
talking about is constructing the the idea in the mind of a separate self around which is constructed a separate identity which then keeps you separate from all that is rather than being part of the eternal flow of arising and passing away into form and ultimately out of form of everything that is in form including these bodies and that it includes the understanding that in these bodies or around these bodies there is nothing but impermanent arisings and passings away nothing about this body in it or around it that will stay or will continue with a radical break with the religious teachings of India at that time. He wasn't, in a very important sense, a reformer of Indian religion. And there is no separate self. The Indian religious tradition at that time was built around the idea of Atman, and Atman being a special separate essence of who you are that traveled through many transmigrations and lives trying to clear itself of imperfections, impurities, dross that had accumulated on it. And that that Atman then found itself in a new body, in a new life, depending on how good of a job it had done on cleaning itself up. And the Buddha's uh, great insight was that there's no such thing. There is no separate thing that travels from intact, unchanging, from place to place. No essence of a person. That's actually where the word anatta comes from. Anatta is the insight of non-self. That's really one of the fundamental three insights of the vision, of the Buddha. There is no separate, unchanging thing at all. No separate self. It's the sense of a separate self that gets set up each time we identify with a need we, a lust arises and we imagine there is someone who owns that lust and that the lust needs to be appeased because that one will be unhappy as long as the lust isn't appeased. But it's endless. We end up appeasing a ghost and avenging a ghost all the time. And it's a tremendous freedom to know that this body is certainly here, part of the flow of the change that's really the story of the dependable arising and passing away into form and out of form of everything in the world quite in a magical way in an extraordinary way in a lawful way following all the rules of the greatest sense of karma is that it follows all the rules genetics and everything else that we don't even begin to know about but nothing that is separate that needs to be worried about. So he got up in the morning, declared his freedom, spent some period of weeks there in the Bodhi around that area, consolidating his understanding before he left that place to teach. The very first people that he met to teach The very first people that he met to teach were the group of five bhikkhus, five monks, that he had been practicing with, with his last teacher, and that he had left to go off on his own. And the folklore around that, I love it, because in the, in the stories about that it says, 
they saw him coming from afar and they recognized him and they said to each other something like, here comes that, um, I don't know if they said good for nothing, or here comes that lazy monk, uh, uh, Gautama, who left the vigorous, strong, dedicated life that we have. Let's not even listen to him. Let's snub him, so to speak. But then the story goes on to say that as they approached him, they were so aware of a kind of a, a lightness around his being. They knew that something had changed. And uh, they felt compelled to listen to them through him. And so he preached then the very first teaching sermon of his career, the sermon of setting into motion the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And... Uh, the stories then go on to say that uh, he preached that sermon, and at the end of that sermon, all five of them got it and were totally free of any misconceptions as well. And they became his first five followers and the central part of the order that he went on to found. What he taught in that sermon were the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. The first of the Four Noble Truths, Sabam Dukkam, all is suffering. Sabam Dukkam, that's the Pali for it. Uh, usually we say Dukkha because we are, uh, we are saying it in the Sanskrit way. By 300 years later, <coughs> Sanskrit is the language of the Dharma. The Buddha lived and taught and spoke Pali, which is a dialect. Probably it's best classified as a dialect of Sanskrit. Sanskrit, maybe the more formal. Dukkha is what we normally call it. Everything is suffering. This is why I brought the New York Times from the other day. I had in mind the question, who wants to really look at suffering? I thought about it because this is Saturday's New York Times, and uh, on the front page, there's a photograph out of a room at the uh, Marriott Financial Center Hotel, which has just reopened. I don't know if you can see it from where you are, but there's a, the Marriott, which is quite close to where the World Trade Center was, just reopened. And um, they have a, a certain number of rooms that have a view right out over the construction that's happening. And when you come into the hotel on the ground floor, apparently, you come into a side street. You have to, it's hard to get there because much of uh, the southern part of Manhattan is still cordoned off. Uh, and the lobby is all refurbished and fixed up. It was used, the lobby and the first several floors of the Marriott were used in the weeks following uh, September 11th for uh, housing uh, rescue workers and feeding them and letting them lie down and rest. And at first, uh, they had Red Cross people in there and chaplains, and it was converted to a, a really a, 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 um, a place of refuge. But... It's opened up as a hotel now, and this article goes on to say that some people, most people, I think, request a room looking out the other way, 
looking at the river. Some people uh, ask for a room with that view. Um, Radio commercials with thundering choruses of I'm back, back in the New York groove, are promoting bargain weekend rates, unspecified attractions, and scenic Hudson River views. Left unmentioned, though, is the Olympian view of Ground Zero from some of the rooms. The grapplers biting into the rusted remains of the World Trade Center complex, the dump trucks grinding away, the construction workers lumbering around gray-brown earth, The growing demand for rooms with that view is just one of the many awkward realities of trying to provide hospitality within the police-patrolled perimeters of a single crime scene. Talked about how uh, difficult it is for the uh, hotel personnel to maintain a demeanor of balance with the people who are there. I just read you this piece because it's, it's I, mostly I was struck with what phenomenal newspaper writing this is. Somebody staying in that room said, I didn't come here to be ghoulish. It's hallowed ground. It should be treated that way. In room 2802 last Monday, the groans of ground zero could be heard through the night and into Tuesday morning. The beep-beep-beep of trucks in reverse, the clanks of metal colliding, the low roar of heavy equipment vehicles, and no matter what the time, the view between the two nearby buildings, both draped in netting the color of a widow's veil, both draped in netting the color of a widow's veil, was essentially the same. Grapplers prowling like dinosaurs on a prehistoric plain, carnation-like bursts of light from acetylene torches, Huge dump trucks weighed down with debris and men in the distance, distinguishable against the dark backdrop only by their white helmets and orange reflector vests. Very hard to read. As if to underscore for guests that this is not just another construction site, they can be seen plainly the sad graffiti left by investigators when they found evidence in the first days after the two hijacked airplanes pierced the Twin Towers. The spray-painted phrase, plain parts, is scrawled above an arrow on the roof of the building below, and beside it another phrase, human parts. The Buddha said there were three kinds of pain. Three kinds of dukkha. Dukkha dukkha is obvious pain. Pain of body and the pain of the mind. Just something hurts you in your body. It's dukkha. Hurts you in your mind. Vipranama dukkha is the suffering due to change. Shankara dukkha is the suffering due to conditioned states. It can happen in the middle of pleasure. 
and the suffering due to um, that comes from not seeing clearly about the nature of what it is that we hold to be the object of our pleasure or what we hold to be the nature of the self. I think about all the levels of pain in, in that particular story. Is the body and the mental pain of being there when it happened or there now? It's the pain of change every time you look out of the window there and you see what used to be and what isn't and what we expected. You think about in our own life how much we didn't expect things to happen. When you get a phone call from somebody and they say, uh, especially on the answer machine, uh, this is so-and-so, call me back, something terrible has happened. You know what it is. You, you go through right away. It could be this, could be that, could be something. But Or someone calls and says, call me back, I don't want to leave this message on the machine. You already know that. Because we're human, and we will all be separated from what is dear to us. And we think, I think, I think very much since September 11th, uh, we're very much more awake, not so much um, to what we counted on that isn't here anymore, but really that we were mistaken on being able to count on things or to imagine that our pleasure was in anything that we have or don't have and not in our capacity to love. I wonder about, remember when when it was just after September 11th and um, we talked a fair amount about the people who phoned each other right after, or during, and said, I love you. It seems to be the only question of, uh, that, that matters. Are we able to love people? Uh, nobody said, uh, be sure to do your math homework, or uh, be sure you get into graduate school, or I'm so disappointed the mortgage didn't go through, or that the kinds of things that we think will give us pleasure, kind of refuge that we think, if only this would happen, then I would be completely happy forever. Not true. There really isn't a completely happy forever. I don't think there's a completely happy forever in a human body. I think that there's a completely heartbroken And I think there's a happiness from discovering that we can respond to it with love. That that's the happiness. It isn't getting any particular prize, having doing it exactly right. I think it's discovering that we can love the brokenness of a life and the and the perishability of it doesn't make it good 
This is a terrible event. This is a devastating event. And think about all of this is what I think about a lot. There is no way that any of us is eternal. We're not going to get out of this life alive. But we hope always for long lives, untroubled with illness, with reasonable good luck, with people who love us. That's really what everybody says. What I want is I just make it through. It's really all, everybody wants that. But even so, you know, a friend of mine's mother just died. Her mother was 87. That's a good age to live to get to be. Mother was 87 and uh, reasonably vital and certainly thinking well for 87. Really can't want much more than that. And she doesn't want much more than that, but she misses her terribly. There's no way, really, that we can say, okay, since I got my allotted amount, that's enough. Gone is gone. It doesn't matter. So there is the inevitable letting goes that have to have to ha- happen in life. You think that's sad enough. Think about how we make it so much worse with greed. Could, uh, the, when I, it's 11 o'clock, so I won't do this now. But just to show you, I looked at the front page of the paper and I made a, I didn't even make a circle around that. I made a circle around pretty much all the other stories, one not. But every one of them has to do with pain caused by greed or hatred. That on top of the fact that it's difficult to live a life, motivated by greed and hatred, and I think motivated, in fact, mostly by greed, more than anger, surprisingly, the whole world is causing the whole world a great deal of pain, extra pain on top of what we have to do. I think that's what the Buddha meant us to see. Not that we could end the suffering of suffering. That This is it. But it's okay, it. What makes it okay is the redemptive heart, the fact that we can respond with kindness. That's what makes it okay. That's what gets us out of bed in the morning. That's what puts us back into doing something. Out of love, actually. Sometimes I say to people, I can say the whole of the Buddha Dharma. I don't know if it's 10 words or 13. You count with me. When we see clearly, when we see clearly, uh, we behave impeccably out of love on behalf of all beings. 15. 15 word Dharma. That's what I think the Buddha taught. I used to think it was seven. When we see clearly, we behave impeccably. But I don't think that's that's enough. So I don't I don't think we just I don't I don't think it's a causal relationship. We could see clearly, and if we weren't human beings with hearts, we could see clearly, say I'm free, and then spend the rest of our lives sitting quietly somewhere, waiting for time to pass. I think when we see clearly, really. We are blown out of our seats, impelled out into the street, motivated to do something, because we have hearts that respond with compassion. I think about that. I think it's wonderful to be a person. It's such a noble thing to be a person. Imagine. 
<coughs> Actually, the Buddha taught that, and Buddhists believe, that a, being born in a human birth is the most remarkably wonderful possibility. <coughs> you could get born in the realm of the gods where there isn't suffering, but nothing much happens. Get born in an angelic realm, nothing much happens. Pleasant. You can get born in a lower realm. There's a lot of suffering, but not the capacity to appreciate the the um, happiness that comes from realizing the gift of being able to love. I think that's what the Buddha taught. And we'll continue with him next week. Let's sit for a minute. May we all of us continually be rededicating ourselves to that clarity of vision. Look with your eyes. If we look with our eyes, we'll respond with our heart. And if we do it, we'll spread it. May the merit of our practice be offered as a gift for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere have enough to eat, have a safe place to live, have drugs to treat illness, have people who care for them, look after them, remember their name. May all the needless suffering on this planet come to an end. may all of us be a part of making that happen. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.